So we've been saying that inevitably in our lives we're going to find ourselves in situations where the structure of the situation demands a choice, a moral choice uh, on our part between two values, or of one value out of maybe more than two, or um, other times, uh, or or just... uh, directions in life, not so much situation, where we're, uh, in a way, we need to choose uh, preferentially one value uh, that's in perhaps an antinomical and oppositional relationship with another value. It's not even just from the structure of the situation, it arises from the complexity of individual values and virtues. implicating and involving others, needing counterweights, etc. And uh, values themselves being an antinomical relationship. And so we're asked to do this. Life asks us, it presents us with these situations. Sometimes the choices are relatively simple, but when there's this antinomical relationship, etc., between values, it's, uh, it's not always so simple. And we can't we can try to avoid this, but that's hardly a solution. Not very ennobling, not very helpful for our soul or our uh, the growth of our moral being. And so we incur a certain guilt with the responsibility that comes as we make those choices in life, as we as we navigate our path through life situations and in the general directions of our life. Now one factor to consider here is <coughs> why one person makes in this, between given a choice between, let's say, two values, why one person chooses uh, to prioritize and invest in and care for <coughs> and express and manifest one value and another person Uh, chooses a different value. There's a consideration about um, of personal differences here that I think is really crucial. Um, A difference in souls, in soul styles, in soul callings. So this uh, must come into kind of a mature consideration of, of ethics. We touched on very briefly Earlier, there are, we could say, moral duties that we have to the collective. have a moral duty to uh, the the groups around me, the uh, communities, the larger society, etc. And I have, you have, uh, each person has, uh, likewise, a moral duty to one's own individual soul. And there can be a tension here between them, of course, and um, it's not always easy. In a way, you know, uh, no one can flower fully as an individual, no one's soul can flower fully without um, drawing sustenance and all kinds of support, in fact, um, uh, from the basis, and, and a basis from the collective, from what's around them. The individual rises up out of that um, to whatever extent they, so to speak, rise up. 
But likewise, the collective, the community, the society is um, dependent on the individuals. And actually a really healthy community has um, individuated individuals. It's not a collection of um, replicas of unindividuated individuals. To, to the extent that the individuals that make up a community or society are um, true to themselves, far, listening to their, their callings, their soul's promptings and callings, caring for their duty to themselves, and allowing that um, uh, to, to shape the flourishing of their being, the full flowering of their being, to that extent... Uh, a, a community is strong, is robust. So there's a kind of reciprocal dependency and reciprocal need between the collective and the individual. And in terms of the moral duties, there's there's a kind of tension there. So we already said that. But how does this? What, what can we uh, say about <clears throat> about how the personal? what Hartman would call the personality um, or soul style, is the duties of, uh, uh, the individual duties of, of a soul, the soul duties um, that are individual. Um, how does that uh, come in, flow in, and influence and affect this whole discussion of ethics, especially where there's choices uh, to, to be made between values, as there always will be, as we said. Uh, so some of what I want to explore a little bit here, or open out a little bit, may be or may sound to some people, or may be considered a little bit provocative, maybe controversial, maybe contentious. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe not at all to some people. Maybe, maybe so to others. I'm certainly not seeking to uh, provoke or to be controversial for the sake of it. I um, get absolutely no kick out of that kind of thing. Um, but I do think it's important to try to open up this area, which is uh, tricky, delicate, um, needs careful consideration. Can we begin, just begin right now, to open open this up, for uh, open up the whole field for kind of wider, deeper, uh, some more careful considerations regarding ethics and soul, um, especially as some of the things I want to go into now are kind of areas that are not usually considered when uh, when we consider ethics, but they are pertinent, and particularly they're pertinent if we're interested in soul making and axiomatic to soul making is the principle of the uh, the the the. the, the necessity of my uniqueness and my particularities and my individual soul. Yeah, it's not at the exclusion of everything else, but that's a part of it. So these these areas that I want to talk about are pertinent when we talk about sila and soul, ethics and soul. So I hope, I'll do my best not to be clumsy. Um, I'm sure uh, I'm sure inevitably I'll be a little clumsy in how I phrase things and treading in this delicate territory, but I'll I'll do my best. Um, So, there's this whole range of values, a whole range of um, 
possible choices that we have, as I said, either uh, in, in terms of the, the larger currents of our life or in specific situations. And we need to make choices. Yeah, to, to not make a choice is also a choice, but as I said, not ennobling, not soul-making. So we need to make choices. And part of what comes into making our choices, part of what comes in, uh, or what forms and shapes and directs and inspires um, different choices uh, by different individuals, is those personal uh, soul styles, personal, uh, if you like, inclinations or callings or duties of the soul. Now, Hartman points out, and uh, I can't remember if I said this, but it really, it really is important to say um, that the the universal values, in other words, not the not the uh, so, for example, those um, basic precepts that we get in Buddha Dharma, or the basic sort of the last five of the. Ten Commandments and that kind of thing. The universal values, such as justice, etc. Um, they need to form the basis. And in a way they have what he calls unconditional precedence. So they are um, they are kind of set in stone. Like they are like the Ten Commandments. They're chiseled in stone. And they form a platform, a foundation, on which... Um, on top of which, on the basis of which, the more differentiated um, personal values can be built and raised. So everyone needs to, uh, everyone has an obligation to these basic universal values and to uh, those the, the precepts organized around that. But on top of that, uh, on top of that basis, all kinds of choices present themselves in terms of the uh, variegated uh, emphases on different values that that uh, we, one can have, that, that, that there can be between human beings. But that's the foundation. So, so we need to bear that in mind. In a way, you know, that uh, sounds like, at least in abstracto like that, it sounds like a relatively simple formula, maybe. And sometimes it is very simple. Um, So, okay, you choose this, I choose that, you prefer this, I prefer that, I prefer developing this, I prefer investing in that. As long as we're keeping the universal values, um, we're both keeping those universal values, uh, keeping, excuse me, a care for them then all's, all's well and good. And so sometimes it's that simple, but sometimes it's not. It's a little more tricky. It's a little more nebulous and ambiguous. And we draw in, of course, to our evaluation of others and self, uh, sometimes what's just um, a kind of indoctrination or fashion or the dominant view of the culture, etc. And it's not necessarily... Uh, such a open-eyed, unblinkered view of the moral landscape. Because some souls, you know, as I, I sort of just see different people, read about different people, know different people, some souls, for example, may have a kind of soul calling to express or manifest what might be quite extraordinary virtues, not so commonly found virtues, a kind of boldness that's out of the ordinary, 
a moral courage uh, that's out of the ordinary. For instance, to speak the truth, to stand up in the truth despite uh, threats and possible dangers, etc. They might, uh, in their soul style, express and manifest what Harman called this radiant virtue. The German Schenkindertugend, and I asked Kirsten, and she said that's that's not a good translation, but I'm not, I didn't ask her what a better one would be. She said it would be difficult to find words. But anyway, this radiant virtue, there's something in the being, uh, it's like sunshine, uh, spiritual sunshine, just pours out of them, and it radiates to those nearby. Um, sometimes just communicates non-verbally and and indirectly and sometimes through the direct interactions. That's not a common virtue. It's an uncommon virtue. Or a person may have a capacity for a kind of radical generosity. Um, How they are with money, how they are with their, their possessions. A kind of magnanimity, a largeness of soul. adventurousness of spirit that's quite rare. So some people may have those kind of um, more ex- extraordinary co- uh, virtues, and their their soul that's their soul style, that's their soul uh, shape, that's what they're called to manifest in this life. It's part of their ethos, their soul, their personality. And sometimes, what I notice is that. Um, those that manifestation, that soul style, may kind of um, come in a package, if you like, where, for example, other virtues are uh, relatively neglected. We've touched on this a little bit before, or even even contravened, or uh, not at least not developed so much. So, for example, they may not be gentle of speech. They may be uh, at times quite harsh quite um, even insensitive, um, judgmental, or they just seem to live in a way that uh, um, keeps quite different uh, sexual mores, mores, for example. They may be um, quite promiscuous, and other people might be looking and judging, for instance, that promiscuity. Maybe that goes with the kind of liberality and freedom of a soul. So oftentimes, those uh, those particular virtue, those particular neglects of whichever virtues are rel- relatively speaking neglected, are maybe judged by others in the society, in the wider society. But those others may be relatively or even completely insensitive or blind to the particular set of virtues that this person is expressing. They're, they're kind of blind to the radiant virtue, they're blind to the radical generosity, they're blind to the moral courage, or they don't, um, they don't value it so much, they evaluate it differently. And the others who are judging this person, I'm thinking of several people now, but... Um, say something in a minute. So, um, uh, the others who are judging might also be blind or insensitive to the very idea of duty to one's um, soul, to one's daemon, 
demons, angels, to one's what Hartman calls the ideal personality. So, this is tricky. The universal values um, must be a foundation, must be a common universal foundation. But on top of this, uh, there's this space amplitude for personal variation and uh, and um, disposition and inclination and the callings of the soul sounds simple but it can be very tricky here because what are uh, what exactly are those universal foundations or where are the boundaries so one of the people I'm thinking about is Bob Marley I'm thinking of some others but let's just let's just focus on him right now uh, just very briefly and uh, to me, he had um, a lot of those uh, qualities that uh, I just uh, rattled off as something exuding from his being, a magnanimity, a largeness of spirit, a, a, a radical generosity, a sort of openness of being, a radiant virtue. He just shines um, that kind of um, spiritual sunshine and beneficence. Uh, Boldness, adventurousness, courage—not to mention, of course, his creativity and his uh, his bestowing of his gifts artistically to humanity. And at the same time, for instance, some people would criticize him as being, well, he was extremely promiscuous sexually, and um, you know, he wasn't faithful to his various women. I think he slept with um, people who. you know, slept with others while he was married and, and things like that. I don't know the exact details, but so to some people, well, he contravened the basic universal values, uh, say in his sexual promiscuity. Um, but I, I just have a question: in in that particular personal, relational, marital, community, and wider social context in which he lived at the time, and Jamaica and that, that, that community and that larger community where in, the, in that context, in that complex co- uh, con- of context uh, personal, relational, marital community context and the, and the wider social context where exactly was the boundary of universal value, save vis-a-vis um, uh, sexual behaviour or even um, fidelity to one partner monogamy, etc. So, as I said, this is tricky. This is this is really um, tricky. Um, I guess there's several points here. Partly it's the, the need for this faithfulness to the individual soul and the individual soul's callings and the virtues that um, have a claim that grasp the individual soul. And at the same time, the tension with the... Um, duties to both the collective and also to the, to the faithfulness to the universal values. But sometimes these universal values are not exactly um, uh, clearly, their edges are not clearly demarcated. And on top of all this, uh, very often people who have that kind of certain kinds of spirit often get judged um, by people who are blind to certain virtues, or as I said, blind to the uh, duty souls have, the duty each soul has to 
the particularities and particular callings of one's own soul. So, I don't know if that made sense, and as I'm trying uh, trying to tread very carefully here, um, it's perhaps as best if, if we, again, view this as something for us to consider, something for you to consider carefully, to open up certain areas, or so, which don't usually get opened up. Rather than me provide an answer which I don't actually have. So there's somehow these tensions, there's tension created by these these pulls, these demands, these duties that pull in different directions. But the development of what Hartman calls the personality um, towards the what he calls the ideal of the personality. So for him, I think I touched on this in another series of talks, and I can't remember where, just very briefly. But for him, um, this is, uh, each person has an ideal personality. Uh, The ideal that, um, if you like, exists in the realm of ideal. We don't, again, we don't completely ever manifest. We don't completely ever express it uh, fully, precisely, um, totally, faithfully. Uh, but we have, uh, in a way, that constitutes in some ways m- our more real essence in some ways than what we actually do manifest in some ways. So there's that kind of view, and, and it's akin to when we talk about the angel out ahead or the daemon, the daemon refracted, etc. So in his language, the development of our personality towards the ideal or in faithfulness to the ideal, in in hearkening, in listening, in uh, in uh, duty to the callings and the shapings and the promptings of the either push and the pull of the ideal of our personality. That is a virtue. Um, and in and so can we include that in our sense of, of values? The value of our individual personality, the value of our Listening and caring for those individual um, soul callings and the shape, shapings and the growth of our soul. And included in that process, in the development of that virtue and the care for that virtue, is uh, our, uh, each, each of us as individuals, our unique weighing and um, differential emphasis uh, between uh, different values. A unique weighing up of different values. So how I weigh up and make a choice um, between different competing uh, oppositional values in a situation or in my life is different than you and different than a third person. And that um, that's part that that's part of shaping my being. At the same time, and uh, with this principle of, of goodness being choosing the higher value. But just to say goodness is choosing the higher value doesn't doesn't give enough uh, 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 clarity always about what what to do, and doesn't give a full enough picture of what's involved in our in the choices that are presented to us as souls in life. So yes, choosing higher, but combined with that, we have this uh, possibility to choose in different ways. It's part of um, developing our 
our, our souls, part of our soul making. And this faithfulness to our own soul's calling, and the particularities, the individualities, and what Hartman calls our ideal personality, that's a virtue. So there's what he called, there's an, there's an ought um, and a duty uh, to this unique, irreplaceable, once-in-a-cosmos soul. This unique, irreplaceable personality in Hartman's terms. And that's that's also a moral demand. That's, that itself is a moral value. It's a, a high moral value. Perhaps a very high one. But it can't... Uh, it loses its, um, it plummets in height if it, 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 it loses its status as a value if we contravene universal values in, in our um, development of that. So this ought, this duty um, to this, said, this unique and irreplaceable once in a cosmos soul that you are. Uh, it's hard to find um, uh, teaching teachings like that certainly in Buddha Dharma certainly in kind of um, emptiness teachings or teachings of oneness of which there are many different kinds um, in general they lack that and it's actually quite unusual in moral philosophy to um, to recognize that duty to our what Hartman calls ideal personality to our personality our duty to our individual soul it's hard to. Uh, I'm not at all an expert on um, the, the sort of range of moral philosophy, but I, I, I'm not sure where else. Maybe Makshela. I'm not sure where else you find such a thing in uh, considerations of moral philosophers, which tend to try and uh, kind of compact things to a single rational sort of uh, rule of thumb, as Kant did, for example. So, within the uh, realm of this consideration of what's an individual calling um, and our duty to that, I want to consider three particular uh, kind of unusual manifestations within that. Again, for the sake of opening out what's less less commonly opened out, and for the sake of um, uh, our exploring the relationship of soul and sila, because these ones in particular may have quite a lot to do with soul, too, in particular ways. So, one is the virtue of nobility, as, as Hartman uses that word. Um, so, I tend to use it in a slightly different way, but it's not important. I want to talk about what he calls the noble um, as one possible kind of virtue or value that, um, or orient, also orientation to values, as I explain it, you'll see what I mean, um, that, as I said, is, is rarer, but may have its place when we consider uh, the, the, the callings of individual souls. So he, for him, the noble is the opposite of the common. 
Okay, so there's nothing to do with um, social class and money and uh, nothing to do with uh, aristocracy in the usual sense of the word, nothing to do with um, ethnic or racial divisions, nothing like, like that. It's just the opposite of the common, this, uh, what he calls noble. So because in a way, um, he writes, goodness can, be, can sometimes be commonplace. Um, there is such a thing, he writes, as hackneyed virtue, ignoble contentment, narrow-minded virtue and righteousness. Now, he's not saying that all goodness is, is like that. That would, uh, that would be not, not uh, accurate or kind to say that at all. Um, but, uh, and, and even when, uh, said hackneyed, even when there's a hackneyed virtue, it doesn't make it bad. It's just, there's just something common. It's just what everyone does, or most people do. So this nobility that he's talking about is actually not everyone's concern. Goodness, this, uh, uh, what it is to be good and to practice being, to practice goodness, to, to invest in goodness, to care for goodness, that's everyone's concern. Nobility is something that's not everyone's concern. It's particular to some souls, if you like. It is uncommon. It is always and necessarily common to few, he says. So it's the um, its opposite is is the common, the usual, ordinary, uh, in the well-worn track. He writes. Insofar as upon it, goodness as well as badness can be found. So uh, and and then by its very nature, the noble is not everybody's concern. So, even among the good, if you, if there are such, you can say the people who are good or who care for goodness, um, there are the noble and there are the not so noble. Um, he, he says it consists in nothing but an aristocracy of disposition. So, what's he talking about? Uh, he's talking about something very particular here, and in a way, it only partially overlaps with with the way I might use the word usually, or most people might usually use the word usually, but uh, so in, in any culture there's a kind of uh, generally accepted morality, in most cultures at least, certainly throughout history, maybe, maybe less so nowadays, but um, there's, a, there's a generally accepted morality and we talked about this historical fact of the shifting of uh, moralities between cultures, different times and places in history, and different communities, etc. Um, but this kind of search for what is not yet in in the range of the accepted morality, uh, he said, this is a noble search. People. Um, some people sensitive to groping for, intuiting at the edge of grasping and being grasped by um, a value or a set of values that are that are out of the ordinary um, for that context that they're in, for that social context that they're in, and the accepted morality that has. Um, so there's the kind of uh, prevailing view, and that whatever that morality is. Now it can be extended upwards into sort of higher reaches of the development of certain values. That would be one way for grasping what's out of the uh, common range. But it can also kind of um, move 
laterally, if you like, on a more, um, not so much just upwards in terms of higher uh, higher values or more extreme kind of reaches of a certain value, but also into different values uh, that are not even on the radar of um, of a uh, accepted morality of a, of a society, etc. Um, so, and he says, it is to this uh, also, as well as the height um, of, of moral values and extending the highest, to this also, this wider range, this uh, moving into new territory, this sensing, uh, or this opening up of a novel uh, ethical sensibility, ethical sensibilities, it is to this also that the searching glance of nobility is directed. Progress, therefore, in selecting values, even within the range of goodness, is itself a function of the noble, for nobility of character is the pursuit of the uncommon. Um, and now, what he's saying is that, uh, in a way, there are kind of pioneers um, in any uh, society or time and place uh, whose antennae uh, whose soul receptors are sensitive to what is uncommon, what is beyond the scope of the usual sensibility. And in kind of opening up that sensibility, uh, they, they, um, they break new ground. But in time, that new ground uh, comes to, comes to uh, be shared with uh, that those perspectives, those sensibilities, those priorities come to be shared with the larger part of society, and and so what what was sort of cutting edge new territory becomes actually relatively common, and then the process has to start again historically. What uh, now? Now this range is common, and now and now some people will uh, be sensitive to newer values, to the uncommon. Um, so the content of nobility changes, although its direction towards the uncommon remains the same, he writes. Uh, and in the, he continues, in the historic process of the displacement of values, so this, um, this shifting of the torchlight uh, uh, um, in, from area to area on the ho- within the whole range of the scope of the firmament of values, in the historic process of the displacement of values, the essence of nobility is the perpetual anticipation, the searching and testing, the moving forward, which transforms the ethos of an epoch. Its content at any given moment must therefore be the moral claim of the uncommon. Without the noble, the process must needs stagnate, and since to stand still is an impossibility, become retrogressive. On the grand scale, nobility is the onward striving life of the historical ethos. In the individual is the spirit of the pioneer. So this whole way, you know, again, I don't know where this lands in you. Some say, oh, this sounds so elitist, and uh, it's a certain view of history and um, all that. But um, to me, there's something worth considering here. Uh, op- again, we just want to open out some territory for our consideration doesn't mean we have to buy these ideas wholesale, but there is something, again, rarely considered um, in, in moral philosophy, perhaps, here, that, again, as I said, has 
has a uh, importance for our considerations of soul making. Um, so he says, as regards its content, the higher development of the human type always depends on the actual tendency, uh, not perhaps the conscious aims of the noble. It necessarily clashes with the interest of those who are accounted good, in inverted commas, and is always to some extent aloof from the community at large and stands in open opposition to the universality of their standards. So again, we get this. um, Some people would judge this this prioritizing of virtues to which they are blind. Um, And... Uh, there's a kind of, as he says, a a clash um, between normally respected members of society, the normally uh, sort of, um, you know, good member of society, uh, deemed good member of society, there's a kind of clash of um, interests and and moral values and vision and sensibilities. And so there's a kind of separation there. An improvement in the standard is made possible by concentration of energy upon a narrower sphere. So again, there's this, uh, which we touched on before, how is it that um, progress is often made, new territory is uh, stretched into, it's by um, focusing on getting interest in something in particular and really heightening uh, our focus, our work in that direction. Often. Hence the necessary remoteness of the selecting group from the general public. So, uh, he also writes, it's quite strong, he writes, the noble man, again, excuse the um, gender bias language, it's hard to read, it's quite dense, it's hard to uh, convert it as I'm reading. The noble man hates all compromise as to values even those that are wise and beneficent. So this can you get the sense of the, the, the kind of soul character of what he's talking about? A pioneer who is at odds with the sort of um, uh, kind of entrenched, um, ordinary, common, uh, respectable way of being. He's reaching out, she, she, they are reaching out, listening to some kind of uh, sense of something else that is possible, some extension that's possible. And there is in that character a kind of dislike of compromise. They, they tend to be very uncompromising. The nobleman hates all compromise as to values, even those that are wise and beneficent. His salvation lies in another direction, in the exclusive fostering of the value which he thinks should be preferred, even at the expense of all others. So this kind of character can often be, uh, can often seem to others a bit out of balance. They're sort of um, pressing on into into the future in a way, into into unexplored territory, and as such, they can be leaning forward into that um, in a way that others would regard as as being out of balance. Maybe it's part of the soul style. Is it uh, always uh, a demand for the soul to be balanced? So you get a lot of that in some interpretations of Jungian psychology. It's all about wholeness and balance. Um, And yet there is a place for um, 
a lack of balance. Oh, perhaps there's a place for a lack of balance. Perhaps there's a soul style that goes with that. And yes, it comes with costs. So, again, this is an unusual consideration. It's an unusual way of thinking. It's um, perhaps controversial, but uh, it might per- it might be relevant to certain souls, and it might be relevant to the duty that certain souls have, um, the particular duties that certain souls have, and the particular duties in in the realm of, of values. And they always go together, duty and value. So the new, the expanding um, into new territory of of the valuational sensibility and the, and the, and the uh, ethical sight. I'm not sure if, if some people, um, you know, we've talked about values being a part of uh, intrinsic part of soul making uh, as part of the, one of the elements of the imaginal and everything we're talking about with ethics and how they can relate to values and how our relationship with values and virtues um, can be made soul making uh, in, in that way one might um, some people have sort of said something like this to me um, w- consider uh, that soul making itself is a kind of value. So we're valuing, um, we value soul-making. And as such, that might be, might be, some of these people were saying, a kind of, um, what Hartman would call a noble virtue. Um, or one of the, one of the new, um, for our time, well, a relatively new um, value. We value something because it's soulful. We value soul-making. We value that whole um, ethos and that whole sensibility and sensitivity to existence, to self, other world, to the elements of our psychology, to the cosmos. And that in our time, that that might be uh, an expansion into newer territory in terms of um, a a new virtue and new value, soul-making itself, perhaps, I don't know. The second thing uh, the second area that I'd like to consider again, it's, it's quite tricky, tricky territory. Let's see how we do. Um, is hatred. I want to see if it's possible to shine a little light again uh, from the point of view of soul and what it might have to do with soul, hatred, and soul. So, what do we mean by hatred? I, um, Actually, if you look it up in the dictionary, it just says something like intense dislike, which is good enough um, for our purposes right now. Uh, There's different schools that kind of go into the psychology of hatred in different ways, and and in so doing, they kind of define it in much more specific ways. So, um, but let's just say this intense dislike, and so to speak, to make almost like an enemy out of something. So, it could be... um, Kind of, it could manifest in a kind of cold way. Some people uh, put that in their definition of hatred that has a kind of coldness that's different than anger, which is hot. But I, um, 
I just include both. So it can be cold, it can be kind of withdrawn and out of relationship, or it can be hot and kind of um, uh, ranting, whatever. Uh, okay, so... I'm also with a definition we should say um, hatred is not does not necessarily uh, include ill will ill will means to wish harm on someone okay so you can intensely dislike um, something you can hate something without wishing a person or person's harm um, it's not the same either as cruelty which is kind of um, inflicting harm and enjoying um, either inflicting harm or enjoying a harm that someone else is suffering. Those are, if you like, a whole step further from uh, what I'm talking about here by, by hatred. Okay, so intense dislike that is, let's say, just doesn't include ill will or, or cruelty and something else. But let's, let's see if we put this in a soul-making context or bring, bring together, shine a light from from the perspective of soul-making teachings, if there's something that can be um, uh, wor- something worthwhile to uh, consider here, it's helpful to open out. So I've said several times that kind of, if you like, maybe a really fundamental axiom of the soul-making uh, dharma is um, soul love soul-making. Soul wants soul-making. It can sound so simple. Um, soul wants soul-making. And in a way, it might be possible to use that axiom in a very basic way, in the sense of um, take it as a first principle and see what follows from that principle. So rather than saying, taking, um, uh, you know, the human beings want um, attachment, or human beings want pleasure, or human beings want... um, even biological survival, or whatever it is, you know, those are the primary drives. What if we say, actually, soul wants soul-making, and that's, just entertain the idea that that's the primary drive. Our primary drive as human beings is to soul-making, and that gets diverted, subverted, etc., in different ways. Um, What might ensue, what might that imply when we consider our psychology and our needs as human beings and how we consider all kinds of things, for instance, developmental psychology, uh, etc. So, the soul wants soul-making, which which implies eros, because eros is is uh, an element of soul-making, a dispensable element of soul-making. And soul-making also involves, with the eros, that the um, self, um, other, the world, and even our eros itself become imaginal. Yeah, so we've talked about all this: self, other, world, and eros become imaginal. It's part of soul making. Soul making also um, asks or involves that um, uh, the, the sense of self, other, world in our life, um, the senses of self, other, world in our life, mirror those imaginal uh, self, other worlds, etc. So there has to be, um, to some, in some way, there has to be some refracting, some mirroring, uh, some reflecting. And we also said that with the Eros, there's always got to be this, um, there's always some uh, beyond. 
There's always something to reach into, to grope into, to feel into, to sense into, to create, discover into. There's always the angel out ahead. Uh, so, let me just pause this. So, soul wants soul making, but because of uh, Amitya, because of the basic delusional reification of self, other world, and our elements of our psyche and psychology and being, for instance, eros. Because of um, delusional reification of Ija, because of cultural indoctrination, because of limited patterns um, or limitations on the movement and the growth, the expansion of eros, of psyche, of logos, um, and also uh, of emotional heart life and energy in general, um, it, the soul often moves in a direction that is not soul-making. Okay, so we've been through all this on, on other ret- retreats and talks. So soul wants soul-making, but because of all these other other uh, conditions of Ija, indoctrination from culture, limited patterns of um, eros, psyche, logos, and emotion, it often moves in a direction that's not soul-making. So, of course, many people would... Um, contest that idea that the basic sort of drive is to soul making but um, and and say something like um, you know before all this soul making stuff and eros for soul making which is kind of like an icing on the cake um, souls, beings, egos want, want to live, they want to have biological survival, they want to feel well, they want pleasurable sensations, you know, for its pleasure principle and all that um but you know a we're not clinging to this as a sort of dogmatic ultimate truth this idea that, that soul uh, what souls want most fundamentally is soul making or just entertaining it as a certain idea and it can be very illuminating i think and open up different perspectives and avenues in our life but b you know it's like you can just look um Throughout history, and even today in the West, as countless numbers of human beings choose um, soul-making over and before uh, pleasure, over and before even health, and, and, and sometimes even physical survival. So re- with regards to dying or living, um, uh, sometimes making choices in the service of something that's soul-making... Um, despite the material, uh, hedonic, meaning the, 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 the pleasure, uh, the cost to, to material cost, hedonic cost, in terms of uh, it's painful, it's unpleasant, and despite physical cost. So there's countless um, examples that bear witness to that prioritizing of soul-making over any of these other um, drives, if you like, that are usually considered more primary. Something can trump all those. A person can say, it doesn't matter if I die. I sacrifice my health, I sacrifice my material well-being, my um, pleasure, etc. Um Let's 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 play with this principle. Soul soul wants soul making as a fundamental uh, drive. Perhaps the fundamental drive with everything that's involved in soul making. Um, 
Now, sometimes what happens, of course, is the soul-making is blocked. It's not possible. Or in some ways it's blocked in some in, in, with some inner or outer blocks. It's not possible for the sense of self, other, world and eros to become imaginal. Either one has only literalized um, the desire, um, so it, there's desire there, it's uh, craving rather than eros, um, and, and nothing is imaginal for, for whatever reason. Or, um, in, in the blocking, uh, one literalizes uh, desire. So that can go both ways. The, literalized, the only literalized desire blocks the soul-making, or when soul-making is blocked in some other way, then the desire is still there sometimes, and it, and it can only get literalized because it can't, be, um, it can't get uh, transformed by the... And, and dimensionalized and, uh, by the soul-making process. And then a few different things can happen. One is we can try and have um, whatever it is, uh, the, the object that we want. So hatred often arises when there's something we want. When I can't have it. So we can try and have that. And, as we've talked about before, without the eros being allowed to uh, instigate the soul-making dynamic and uh, things to become imaginal, have dimensions and have depths, etc., um, then this desire uh, is just craving and uh, not eros, and it has to move, uh, so to speak, on a, on a one-dimensional plane. It has to move flatly, in the flat world, into a kind of... Uh, greed for more and more things or into a kind of consumerism. That's one option. Another option when uh, when the soul-making is blocked and there's still this desire is that there's a kind of collapse, a despair. And the being uh, collapses and you can sort of see it in, in a person's uh, body language and demeanor at a certain time or as a more general trend in their whole life because there's been a kind of more habitual collapse um, of uh, this whole, um, of the whole soul, in a way, or, or a large portion of the soul, because it's, the eros is not the libido, uh, and the eros are not allowed to grow and to extend things. And sometimes, with that despair and collapse, there's a kind of withdrawal, what some psychologists call a kind of schizoid withdrawal. One sort of retreats back out of relationship with um, uh, the other. Uh, or, or an other or others. What happens then to the eros or the desire? Um, and a third possibility is is hatred ensues. Okay, so um, when we're frustrated in our desires, uh, in the desires of our soul, we either reify something and go to a kind of greed or, or craving on a flat level, collapse in despair inwardly in this kind of withdrawal out of relationship, or um, move into some or, or something gets transformed into a kind of hatred, or some combination of those three. Now, hatred is interesting as well, because it often comes out of... Um, a feeling of, or a perception of powerlessness, of my powerlessness. Uh, the powerlessness of self um, in, in its desire 
uh, with regard to something for the self or as desire for something with regard to an other or as desire in the world and not being able to have that. And uh, sometimes when that's intense, there's a feeling of powerlessness. Um, so, I really want to focus on certain kinds of hatred. So it's a, it's a very particular uh, certain manifestations of hatred that I want to talk about. But you can see this link with powerlessness. Uh, if you weren't already aware of it, powerlessness and hatred often go together. So if you find yourself in a really um, difficult contraction of hatred, you know, one of the first things to do when you're working with it um, is to uh, look for Ask what what is what, what in what ways do I feel powerlessness or what is the particular kind of powerlessness I feel? So you can see, for example, um, sometimes um, uh, someone who's let's say a kind of secularist in some ways, uh, or, or I just use that word in the sense of the, an opposition to to a kind of religious fundamentalist. So I, I use the word secularist in a particular way, um, they may hate religious fundamentalists when they feel powerless in relation to them, e- either because uh, they feel powerless in relation to sort of a group of terrorists, let's say, or they're living in a community or a country or a regime that has an oppressive uh, religious law, and they might hate that because there's a powerlessness in that. Conversely, I think probably a lot of religious fundamentalists um, hate uh, secularists sometimes when they feel powerless um, uh, in relationship to them. For example, um, they may feel, I think a lot of religious fundamentalists in the world probably do feel powerless uh, with respect to the sweeping the sweeping power, if you like, of capitalist and, and modernist views and uh, kind of modernist, what they would regard as immorality and amorality. Um, so there's, hatred and powerlessness go together, um, usually. The hatred often comes out of or from a, a feeling of powerlessness. That's quite an important thing to be aware of and to explore, as I said. Um, <clears throat> but I really want to talk about um, quite specific or kinds of hatred, uh, a bit more narrow ones that um, don't just just involve powerlessness, but powerlessness in relation to what may be soul-making. Um, so, uh, where, where is it? Where, where the, the soul wants soul-making and somehow it's blocked, and maybe doesn't even realize that what it wants is soul-making. So that's partly why I'm saying all this. Um, let's see. So... Um, now, actually, on the theme of power, before we move on, the theme of power, you know, there's actually a lot of energy, a lot of libido, a lot of life force tied up in hatred. It can feel completely frozen and completely um, uh, contracted and imprisoned uh, and not very powerful, but actually tied up in it, because there's so much energy tied up in it, it can actually... Uh, there's potentially a lot of power in it. So it can, uh, there's a possibility of liberating that power and energy. And again, it depends what we do with that power. So it comes from a feeling of powerlessness, but it actually has in it the potential of a lot of power. 
And that power can um, go in the soul-making direction, can um, kick-start, galvanize, instigate, open up, and give uh, give energy to the, the direction of soul-making, to things becoming images, the, to the imaginal sense of self, other, world, and eros. Um, uh, or it can get... Uh, stuck in that withdrawal and despair and that actually that tightness there that contraction actually um, has a lot of power it, it takes quite a lot to keep the soul bound up like that to keep the being um, contracted like that and withdrawn like that or this potential power can can be can move in the direction of literalized action maybe action to destroy uh, the object of hatred or to work towards what is actually desired there's potentially a lot of power in hatred. It feels uh, once we once we get under the uh, the sort of uh, obvious feelings of hatred, then there's a sense of powerlessness, and underneath that is the potential of liberating power. And the question is, and what will we do with that power? Where will it go? Um, so. Anyway, hatred comes out of, usually, a feeling or a perception of powerlessness of the self um, in relation to its desire for something in regard to self other world. Now, an interesting thing about hatred, and this is the particular kind of hatred I want to talk about, is that, I don't know if you've noticed, oftentimes certain kinds of hatred arise for um, uh, what is quite... Close or similar. Um, so it's very common, for example, to uh, people within a certain religious tradition to end up hating, intensely disliking, um, or opposing, or making a kind of uh, enemy or polemic out of someone in the same tradition whose teachings are in some ways very similar or in the realm of philosophy, or in the realm of psychological um, schools of psychology, or, or whatever. So that's also quite interesting. Why is it that certain kinds of hatred arise much more for um, or towards uh, something, uh, some expression or manifestation that's actually not too far from one's own position? Um... So if we think, for example, um, it's unlikely that someone in the insight meditation uh, tradition, uh, and, and that has a range to it, um, would um, uh, start hating, I don't know, the um, proponents of a indigenous belief from Papua New Guinea or something like that. It's too, it's too dissimilar. But within that range of what is quite similar, let's say the insight meditation region, or you say Tibetan Buddha Dharma or whatever, there can be intense um, polemic. The insight meditation tradition tends not to um, speak these things, um, but they simmer along there in the background, and you can hear them come out, and you've probably heard it seep out of um, this voice at times. Um, and certainly the Tibetans are much more open about it and engage in, uh, I think, probably much healthier, open open polemic that's quite um, uh, cutting and uh, intense at times. 
Um, so what's, why, why the similarity? Is it something to do with the relationship between eros and hatred? And is there, are there certain souls um, who might have, uh, if you like, a lot of soulfulness, a lot of disposition towards soulfulness, towards soul-making, towards image, towards eros, that may be in some ways um, liable to or uh, prone to this kind of hatred for something that's actually quite similar. So, eros... So what's the connection here, possibly? Eros um, delineates, right? We talked about this when we, when we went into a lot of detail in previous retreats. Um, so what does Eros do? It, crea- it complexifies. It creates distinctions. It creates and discovers more and more um, faces uh, in what it loves and carves its kind of um, relationship with those particulars. Uh, of which making those distinctions, discovering, creating those distinctions, those different faces and those delineations is part of the whole process. Certainly one can get attached to those. Um, But there's something probably more primary even than the attachment is, is the fear of the dissolving of the objects of Eros that have been created, discovered through this process of fine delineation, of subtle discernment, discrimination, subtle kind of um, uh, yes, differentiation into different aspects. Do you understand? So it's unlikely to uh, it when 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 a another, let's say, teaching or tradition or um, school of thought or whatever it is, is quite close. It's maybe, um, it presents more of a danger to one's own um, objects of eros, what one has delineated and what one loves in terms of what's opening up for oneself. So where there's less similarity, where the difference is huge, it's, it's strangely um, less likely that hatred arises. Somehow the, um, the object of my eros, that which I love, that which I'm discovering and creating here in terms of thought and the direction of my eros and, and the whole sense of soul there, carving that out in terms of self, other, world. If that's um, blocked somewhere or crowded out by something that's um, similar, but in the similarity tends to um, be be heard or seen in a way that kind of washes over all differences, then then the hatred uh, might arise. It's more likely to arise. This is interesting. So, is there a relationship between eros and hatred? You know, uh, hatred in, in Pali and Sanskrit, the, the word is dvesha, and uh, the root there is from from dwa, uh, which is which means two to make two, and of course, with the two-ness, it's part of the eros as well. This is why this um, sort of eros can be dangerous, dangerous um, double-edged sword, if you like. And is there some connection here? In the need to differentiate the, and, and the actual differentiation, 
that comes with eros and the tendency or the danger of, of hatred there. So I'm thinking also of James Hillman at this point who said uh, somewhere or other, you have to hate something. And he, um, if you read some of his uh, more, more interviews and things, but it comes across in, in writings as well as quite polemic. Um, and I think what he would have openly called a hatred of different schools of psychology. Um, now notice that his hatred was for psychologists. He was a psychologist hating different or varying schools of psychology. Um, and so, you know, and, and trying, uh, so for instance, there was a teacher of his at the Jung Institute called Marie-Louise from France, and she presented a certain picture of um, uh, psychology, and particularly of poor psychology and other things, which affronted uh, Hillman's own soul sensibility and the kind of differenti- careful differentiations that his, his soul-making process made, that his eros and the eros of his intellect and sensibility made. And so he kind of, in a way, um, uh, hated her teachings. And he also hated the kind of, what he regarded as the dominant sort of psychology at the time where he was um, beginning to write, the dominant sort of ego psychology or um, behavioral psychology. And so, in a way, the preponderance of those and the, pow- the power of Marie-Louise from France being an authority in, in the Jungian school and the power wielded by the dominant psychological paradigms um, perhaps made him feel a relative lack of power and the danger, as I said, of um, what he wanted to um, find out for himself, discover, create space for, um, present uh, both to his soul and to, the, and to the, the soul of the world and to others, those faces were in danger of getting covered over. And in that, there was a, a, a feeling of a relative lack of power, perhaps. But what was interesting in, in that case, and it's part of what I want to say, is he was able to kind of um, mobilize uh, a, a power for himself in, in actuality by uh, writing and uh, speaking and also by working with and supporting others um, uh, whose work he sympathized with. Um, and in doing all that, in beginning to write and speak and carve out this uh, vision, this soul vision and soul sensibility and present it as something different and differentiable and present it to the world and uh, in a way, he became also image for himself. And uh, his eros, all of it was allowed to, to be uh, come into the soul-making process. And even the other, then, can be a kind of imaginal uh, other, in terms of the other as the object of, of hatred, whether it's a school or a person kind of embodying the school or whatever. It's not actually, as I said, it's not ill will, it's not harm. Um, but it can become... Uh, uh, it can become imaginal and not reified. So with that potential sort of obliteration and uh, covering over and loss of 
what his soul-making process, the differentiations, the aspects of divinity, the aspects of soul that his soul-making process was revealing and creating and revealing to himself. And the danger of faced with the danger of that, faced with the kind of um, relative powerlessness or perception of relative powers in that um, in that wider situation. Yet he was able to um, uh, act and move in a way that the whole uh, landscape of that whole environment uh, and the whole constituents of that uh, landscape in the world of psychology um, became actually imaginal for him. And he himself an imaginal character in in that landscape, an imaginal um, warrior. And um, remember, the, ima- the erotic imaginal always has these beyonds to it. So you get the similar thing with the, the warrior um, always fighting as, as an image. There's not an end to this. It's not. Um, uh, it's not necessarily an end to some of these um, battles. Just some revolutionaries, so to speak, um, actually need a constant revolution. It's not uh, actually the soul would not be satisfied with arriving at some kind of u- u- uh, you know finished utopia. There's this beyond there. So, faced with this kind of thing, then there's the desire, there's the frustrated desire, there's the movement, of, incipient movement of the eros, and the, dan- the sensed powerlessness and danger with respect to what it wants. It could be a, a, a anything that the soul wants. Um, uh, but getting what one wants, or what one thinks one wants, um, in some of those situations, may not actually be soul-making. Uh, that's a, a point to bear in mind. So one way out of all this is to um, one way out to dissolve the hatred is to really let go. To really let go of in terms of what's going on in some of the classical uh, teachings of Buddha Dharma. Another is when the self actually does manage to get some power and, and uh, no longer feels so powerless. So to some degree, there's a decrease of the sense of powerlessness. And to some degree, the sense of the self that's desired, the sense of whatever the other is that's desired, and the sense of the world that one's in that's desired, um, those are achieved kind of materially or literally. And that would be a way also out of the hatred. Um, but another is um, uh, to, for, for something to become image the self, other world, eros, to become image, or some combination of all these um, these avenues out of it. But it's worth bearing in mind that sometimes, as I said, getting what one wants, in other words, the, the um, literal achievement of what one desires, may or may not be soul-making. If they don't... Uh, if the self, other world, and eros don't open up to the imaginal, with this open-endedness there, and the beyondness, the forever beyondness there, um, then that that process may not be soul-making.
And we talked about in that connection, we've talked about before on previous retreats, you know, the need for boundaries, because boundaries make two. There's a boundary between this and that, between number one and number two. So boundaries, limits, actually perform part of the crucible of soul-making. So sometimes, as I said, getting what one wants, if one's not careful, that's not actually soul-making. If I get what I want, there has to be something that more that I don't, that I, that I haven't got that I want. There's the extension into the beyonds of the eros, the angel out ahead, always moving ahead, the infinite um, growth of those beyonds. So there's still um, a boundary between what I have and what I don't have that, that can uh, potentially allow more, uh, allow soul-making process. So I can end the hatred by getting what I want, but it might not be soul-making. And what's the fundamental desire there? Is it to get what I want, or is it actually the soul-making? And then I've sold it short by just getting what I want, but I've flattened it. So hatred will stay as, as kind of poisonous hatred. And it really, really can be very poisonous, and very imprisoning. And uh, toxic in the way it seeps out to other people as well. When self, other world, and eros cannot become image. Uh, it can it can uh, be transformed. Um, it can dissolve when we let go, when we really uh, fully let go in the, in the, in the sense of, in, the, in the usual dharmic sense, or when we get some power uh, in terms of what we want, or when things b- b- become image and they really are allowed to become imaginal. I was struck. Um, I don't know if you saw it. There was a um, there was a video someone sent me, it's, I don't know when it was, sometime in the last three years. And um, it was, I think as someone had posted on Facebook or something, was um, a kind of selfie video that this young woman had taken. I think she was Swedish, but I can't remember. And she had boarded a plane uh, which was deporting a, a, like a regular airline flight um, to Afghanistan or somewhere, and it was it contained um, an Afghani man that was being deported, um, probably a great, you know, facing great uh, threat to his life back in Afghanistan. And she boarded this plane and and took a selfie of herself um, standing up so that and refusing to sit down when the when they asked everyone to sit down so they could take off, and she filmed it. On her camera, she disrupted the flight, and the she and the Afghani man were, were removed. Um, but I was so touched by seeing this video. I don't know if you saw it. It, it was sort of, I think it was quite popular. Um, she was then uh, in a situation where there were potentially uh, a, a great deal of powerlessness, a sense of powerlessness. Um, she actually did something quite quite brave and extraordinary, I thought very beautiful in the kind of the grace with which she did it and the largeness of soul with which she did it. But it was self-empowering in the sense that instead of just feeling powerless in terms of that terrible situation, she did something which was self-empowering. And what was... Um, so so by, by uh, empowering herself that way, there, there was... Uh, I don't know if she would have gotten contracted into hate, but there was certainly like much... 
and less chance. There was the uh, the dissolving of any chance of hatred through the self-empowering. And hatred often goes with this kind of hardness of heart. There's something really brittle and uh, contracted there. And what was part of what was really touching to me seeing this was just how vulnerable she could be at the same time. She was very strong, standing up, being very firm with those who were uh, shouting at her and criticizing her and calling her names. Um, she was very strong, very upright, very bold, very courageous, um, very clear, and at the same time very vulnerable. So she was crying and um, uh, uh, there was there was a, a richness of soul there. There was very uh, a, a breadth of soul. There wasn't any hardness there at all. And it was interesting too. Again, we're talking about ethics uh, in terms of um, some of the uh, some of what people who didn't like what she was doing. Some of the other passengers on the flight. Um, complained about the inconvenience um, and what about you know there are children on the plane etc you're upsetting the children and again uh, you can hear there the sort of um, opposition of different value systems I would say actually values of different heights in this uh, hierarchy of values you know inconvenience, how how high a value, how important a value is convenience. And there's, all, there's so often this trope of upsetting the children, as if that's something, has uh, kind of become something almost sacred above, uh, in, in, in some people's um, outlook in our culture. So that those values like that become somehow more important or eclipse value of uh, care, of kindness, of compassion, of saving someone's life, of standing up to injustice. And again, so uh, we have to be very careful with hatred. I'm just talking there about certain manifestations of hatred that um, come out of Actually, at, at their root, there's a there's a blocked soul making. There's some soul making, and some direction of eros and image and soulfulness that wants to um, allow, wants to be allowed to flourish, wants to be given space to carve out a pathway for soul, and it's blocked. And hatred can come out of that. And sometimes we're just so in the hatred, we don't actually quite. Um, realize the different levels of what's going on, even the level of the powerlessness, etc. In some of those instances, it's worth kind of, it's not easy, but it's worth um, perhaps approaching it with this lens uh, to do with power and powerlessness and soul-making and what the, what the soul might want there that's getting blocked and are there ways for it to, to open up the situation imaginally, etc. So again, I'm uh, tricky territory, difficult, potentially contentious, but really important to consider when we um, want to, if we want to uh, bring in the uh, reflections of uh, about soul and considerations of soul into our considerations and reflections on 
ethics and morality and and also psychology more generally. Okay, a third, uh, again, um, example of a kind of unusual, <clears throat> an area that's unusual, an area of virtue or values that's unusual to consider, but that also might have something to do uh, um, with what's a personal calling for some souls, is uh, one I've mentioned before in, a, in one of the earlier talks, in, in the talks on ethics, um, it's this love of the remote. So I want to say something about that. Um, I think uh, I think it was coined by Nietzsche as, a, as an idea, um, but I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. So, what is this love of the remote? I've actually mentioned it earlier, but I want to go into it again in a little more detail. Um, So, there is for us a kind of um, bond with those that are nearest uh, to us in the community. We have an obligation to them, etc. We feel that bond. Uh, We rub shoulders with them. We feel... Um, moral uh, duty and concern in relation to them. Um, Love of the remote has, uh, one of its aspects is it's for a a love for and an obligation for a moral duty, or it's a sense of love, a sense of obligation, a sense of moral duty to to the future, if you like, to um, the following generation or following generations. That's one aspect of it. I'll qualify it a bit more in a second, in a, in a minute. Um, so Hartman writes about this, and he says, the responsibility which arises therefrom, the responsibility which arises from this, um, uh, the, the responsibility of this responsibility to the future, this particular kind of responsibility of the future, signifies a solidarity of a newer and greater kind than that of justice, brotherly love, and faith. Like these, it is a bond, a fellowship, a pledge, a joint responsibility of person for person. But it's different, he says. In it, the man of today, again, pardon the language, uh, gender bias language, in it, the man of today feels himself one with the man of the faraway future. Though the latter, the man of the faraway future, will have forgotten him and cannot be of help to him. The temporal direction of cause and effect is not reversible. The influence of man on man, solidarity itself, is only one-sided. Only he who lived previously can be of service to him who lives afterwards. The successor bears no retrospective obligation. Instead, there falls to him a new obligation towards the generations coming after him. Solidarity is directed forward only. Its form is progress, not coexistence. Still it is a bond which is great, not only in extent, but great in the quality of its task. So there's perhaps some overlap here with what he calls nobility. And again, we're talking about something that not everyone will resonate with. Not everyone will feel, not everyone will feel a soul calling and a duty in this direction. But he continues, that it is a bond of a more fragile kind that it is taken so much less earnestly by the living than is the solidarity of justice or love, this is not due to its own nature, 
It is due to the moral immaturity of the living, to their not having wakened to their greatest task. It is their lack of thorough self-conquest which transcends the sphere of the now and the near. So again, it's quite strong language. But he's saying sometimes we get so um, preoccupied or so limited in our sense of the scope of our obligations that we forget that we might have a greater obligation to the uh, to the sort of progress of humanity, if you like. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so yes, in German it's called Fenchtenliebe, and it was in fact Nietzsche who, who coined the term. It's very characteristic of Nietzsche, um, and sort of something that he was perhaps the first person to promote, I, I think, the first person to sort of cotton on to and, and sense really keenly. Um, and he had an imbalanced relationship with it because he neglected, said its antinomy, antinomical value in the love of the nearest. So Hartman criticizes him for that, which I think is a, a good point. But then I'm going to read another passage. It says, um, Love of the remotest at first really requires an overcoming of one's commitment to the nearest. So this is interesting. Again, we're talking about values that have uh, antinomical relationships. It is the same overcoming which generally inheres in the nature of a future intention. Everything which is dear and entrusted to man attaches to the immediate environment, usually. Here, an attachment of love to the remote is demanded. Somehow I have to um, feel this attachment, this moral obligation to the remote, the far future. Hence, not only natural inclination, but also genuine moral habit must be overcome, he says. A valuable commitment, not acquired without moral struggle, is to retire into the background and give way to another ethos. So, we maybe worked hard to uh, practice love of the nearest, to practice altruism. And, and in a way... Uh, at a certain stage, maybe something else has to come in, and that love of the nearest has to kind of, uh, relatively speaking, um, diminish in a hierarchy of priorities for some. So it's the conquering of a product of previous self-conquest. Love of the nearest, or altruism, went counter to self-love, to egoism. It was a tremendous extension of the sphere of life, efficiency, evaluation, participation. Now even this widened sphere is seen to be too narrow, to be a drag on the intention of love. Love of the nearest does not go beyond one's contemporary. Its effect does not endure. It dies with its object. It is not adapted to the continuation of its object, but to his present existence. Love of the remotest seeks a different measure of efficiency, an efficacy which will last. So, so I said I'd qualify what he means here, and he doesn't mean that some of you will have heard, oh, the need to consider the next seven generations in our choices now. So that to me is absolutely critical um, when we're talking about things like species loss and climate change, and we really need to bring that kind of thinking, this care for the future, this care for the next seven generations, up to 70 generations, but um, uh, in terms of the totality, all everyone in those generations we need to care for. That's, um, to me, a given, and just 
common ethical, well, it should be common ethical sense. But he's actually talking about something different here. It's not obvious from the language of love the remote, but but he writes, in love of the nearest, the energy of striving, um, as it has no choice, reconciles itself with whoever is accidentally at hand. It's just the practicing of kindness um, and concern and empathy um, and support to whoever's around one. It has nothing to do with whether that person is worthy or not, just as when we teach metta. It's unconditional in that. Um, so it's not interested in assessing whether someone is worthy or unworthy of that uh, kindness, that love of the nearest. With love of the remotest, though, is different. Okay, and this is again where it might be uh, somewhat contentious to to some people to hear. Uh, to hear, it might sound somewhat contentious. With love of the remotest, the opposite is true. The energy of striving, he writes, shall serve not the nearest but the best whom it will bring to further fruition. Herein, a selection of persons from the point of view of values is introduced. A selection which on its side does not refer to the given person at all but to the type of man. So there's this, in this kind of love that Nietzsche was uh, sort of promulgating and that Hartman's picking up on and I think Max Scheler as well, um, there's this interest in those in the far future, but those, if you like, the uh, the most uh, morally ready, uh, the most morally capable, uh, the, the what he calls the best in the future. So it's really quite elitist and quite selective, and it does consider worth, and it does consider along um, lines, evaluate in terms of values and virtues and moral capacity and sensibility. So again, this is um, probably not at all fashionable uh, in a lot of circles nowadays and a lot of our current way of thinking in our society. It's worth noting, and there's, there's in the Pali Canon several times where it mentions that the Buddha and he was going to give a Dharma talk with, with his psychic powers, with his cities, would survey the audience and find who was nearest to awakening. Not those who were already arahants, uh, neither those who were uh, um, uh, near the beginning. He would sort of get a sense of where everyone was at with his psychic powers. And he would aim his talk, he would pitch his talk at those who were nearest to awakening. Not at the beginners, not at those far away, but those who are nearest to awakening. Is there again a kind? Of, he's aiming at the the best. The, he's aiming at a certain capacity. And how rare that is um, for us to think that way this, these days. It um, for, for many of us it contravenes a sort of um, another kind of uh, uh, law ethical law, which is this love of the nearest, which often goes with a concern for who's weakest, who's more the beginner, who's um, who's more in need, etc. So there is this antinomy between these two uh, valuational pools and duties. Uh, and Nietzsche was, Hartman criticizing Nietzsche for being too one-sided and neglecting the love of the nearest. But there's this antinomy, there's this tension um, there.
this kind of, because it puts one out of relationship a little bit, or um, less in relationship with those that are around one, and the demands and the sort of um, more immediate and obvious um, contacts that we have with those around one, this is this is a hard value, it's a hard virtue. And um, Harman writes... Uh, the way of the creative spirit is hard. So there's something in this of, of the creative, because again, we're forging into new territory, um, giving a gift to um, those in the remote future um, who may be able to understand something that's not necessarily easily understandable now, who may be able to sense and who may have a capacity that's not readily available now. For the sake of some... Um, larger process of, of humanity perhaps um, also for the sake because some people's souls are called to do that but the way this way of the creative spirit is hard there's a creative spirit in this and he says it is as hard towards oneself as towards another so it's tough it doesn't set much store by either both are means either oneself or another it's regarding oneself as a means so in this kind of hard work there, there's a kind of, it's a tough love. One's hard on oneself. One's not um, soft and mollycoddling, giving in to what one needs, even though one might be, if you like, isolated in that venture, in that endeavor, in that work. To be a means, he writes, is what is hard for any man. All that is sensitive in him protests. Here the a priorism of sympathy must be silenced. So even sympathy for oneself. Another a priorism, which is also fraught with value, rises up against it. A prophetic sense of the ethical potentiality in man, his latent capacity, the future value which transcends his own person and his own environment. So I don't know if you can get a sense of the kind of um, uh, loneliness of that, isolation, struggle, potential to be misunderstood, etc. There's maybe an overlap here in the, in the realm of aesthetics. And like I said, for me, sometimes I'm not even sure I make a distinction between um, aesthetic sensibility and moral sensibility. I class them all together sometimes. But um, I'm reminded of... Similarity or overlap, I don't know, but I'm reminded of um, Beethoven in his uh, late period, in his last years. He'd gone deaf um, quite a bit before that, but he was able to write quite uh, brilliant, brilliant music with no, with no real um, loss to the quality, uh, extraordinary quality of his music, even though he was deaf. But in his late period, he sort of um, opened out a whole new way of composing, a whole new way of thinking about music. And his contemporaries thought he'd gone mad, actually. They couldn't make head or tail of this uh, new music, the late string quartets or some of the late piano pieces. Um, And uh, it wasn't that they thought, oh, he's gone deaf, because they knew he could write when he was deaf. They thought he'd gone mad. They thought he'd just lost it. Um, But he knew what he was doing, and he said, and something I think Mahler said as well, um, of his symphonies, when people say, no one really listens to your music, he said, both Beethoven and Mahler said, these are for for other generations, they're for future generations. 
So there's a solitude in that. There's a hard, um, a hard task in that. A hard duty. When your attachment, when your love, when your care is for those in the future, and those the fruits of which, are the the thanks for which you will never know. You won't even know if it will land. You won't know if it will be received. Uh, and in the isolation of that, there can be uh, difficulty. So as I said, actually, this is something also Hartman picks up on. It's a, it's a strange venture, this one, because we really don't know the future. I don't. When we, when uh, there's people the love of the nearest, I'm dealing with these people around me. I can see what they need, I can feel it, I can. I know I'm addressing something real, there's a chance that it will... Um, it's obvious to me that we're talking about real needs and, and they're reasonable, uh, uh, it's a reasonable outpouring of my love and my care and my concern. But when, the, when there's love of the remotest, I don't know. I don't know what its actual effect will be. Um, maybe, maybe there won't be any, anything, and all this sacrifice uh, um, is in vain. And not only is it in vain, but in so doing and sacrificing, I'm actually um, sinning, to use Hartman's word, against my contemporaries and those around me. So, in this respect, he says, love of the motus is worse than any other virtue but especially so in its damage to brotherly love, which is always sure of its immediate objects, and which, even when it does not achieve, achieve them, is sure that they are reasonable. We just said that. There's something about this, and i just read it again, another paragraph from Hartman. Um, again, this really may not resonate with, uh, with some of you, I'm sure it won't, but some of you will, will hear... Um, uh, the kind of soul, soulfulness in this and the kind of beauty of this. And it may be for some of you that this kind of love is part, again, part of your your personal uh, soul calling. The way your personal, um, the way your personality, your ideal personality, your soul weighs up preferentially between different values. It says, love of the remotest um, excels brotherly love and every other virtue on certain accounts. Greatness of moral spirit, intensity of spiritual energy, which is required in the taking upon oneself of what is inherently uncertain. The venture is great. Only a deep and mighty faith permeating a person's whole being is equal to it. It is a faith of a unique kind different from trust between man and man, a faith which reaches out to the whole of things and can do no other than stake all it has. It is faith on the grand scale, faith in a higher order, which determines the cosmic meaning of man. When it becomes active and carries out its schemes, its work is of historic import. And this energy is harmonious with a similar feeling, what he calls hope, when it is raised to its highest power, the basic feeling of ethical idealism, which bears all things and gladly suffers for an idea, with a capital I, so that that, uh, transcendent moral value. 
it bears all things and gladly suffers for that soul sense of that the values in their in their transcendent dimensionality divinity beyond us its love for them never despairing hope the peculiar assurance which takes hold of one who risks all on a single issue so again sometimes we might find ourselves um, engaged in something we talk about uh, our duty our moral duty to our fellow um, to our to our fellow human beings. Sometimes we're limited in in our sense of scope uh, of of who our moral duty is. It's interesting reading moral philosophers how often they neglect the natural world and our moral duty to the natural world and moral duty to animals. It's all very (coughs) anthropocentric. And then there's also this limit, potential limiting just to my uh, the love of the nearest, just those who are around me now. And, and uh, not so much the vision opening to this love of the remotest. In a way we could also add, and maybe it's actually akin to, maybe it's a, a, a different name for the same thing, our duty to the angels. And sometimes angels want something, in fact they always want something from us and sometimes what they want is quite hard it's a big ask and sometimes we're engaged in a work that it may seem it doesn't uh, it doesn't have any bearing on or effect uh, or on, on our contemporaries on those around us, no one else seems to value it, it seems like it won't have any impact but, but there may be a duty to the angels. And maybe the angels are the face of the remote. The face of those souls in the far future who will have a capacity. So, uh, as I said, three <coughs> or four kind of potentially controversial ideas there. Um, but also potentially very relevant to our considerations of um, both soul-making and ethics, and certainly of the way in which um, the the, uh, needs of individual souls within (coughs) um, the realm of ethics and the needs of individual souls to find their particular, um, particular callings, particular duties, to manifest and realize their ideal personality, in Hartman's words, how all that um, mixes with and is part of the, a bigger vision of ethics. So, in regard to um, personhood, personality, soul, etc., um, Alistair McIntyre, again, and I think it's in his book, After Virtue, yes, um, also talks a little bit about this, but not not so much, but from quite a different perspective, not using our language or Hartman's language, really. He talks about um, the potential for a a kind of narrative unity um, for a life, for a human life. That there's some sense of um, weaving together, creating, discovering, these are my words now, creating, discovering a kind of uh, soul story, narrative unity, in which our identity, our particular soul, uh, the face of our soul, is bound. So that has something to do with what we would 
and what Hartman would call his personality, etc. And uh, but he, he uses different language, and he writes, "In what does the unity of an individual life consist?" One of the reasons he's uh, before I go on, one of the reasons he's asking this is because um, his one of his sort of tentative conclusions in his book was that it's only when there's a kind of um, unity of a life that all the virtues kind of make sense and they find their place within that unity. So I don't know whether we need to necessarily believe that or uh, um, or whether we can also have this kind of view of, a, as Hilmer says, a polytheistic psyche, but even a polytheistic psyche can have a certain unity at another level to it. But for Aston McIntyre, this idea of a unity is something which makes sense of virtues without a sense of a unity uh, to, to, to the kind of movement of one's life and the direction of one's life. All these competing, um, potentially competing values uh, can't be um, assessed, judged, re- uh, placed in relative order of uh, duty and importance, etc., for the individual. Anyway, in what does the unity of an individual life consist? The answer is that its unity is the unity of a narrative embodied in a single life. So to ask, what is the good for me, in other words, what is the morally good for me, is to ask how best I might live out that unity and bring it to completion. The unity of a human life is the unity of a narrative quest. And he says, a quest for what? And then he says a couple of things which I think are very interesting before coming to his uh, tentative conclusion. He says, two key features of a medieval conception of a quest need to be recalled. The first is that without some at least partly determinate conception of the final telos, the final goal, there could not be any beginning to a quest. Some conception of the good of man is required. So some conception of what is good is required to start um, the quest for what is good. Uh, Secondly, it is clear the medieval conception of a quest is not at all that of a search for something already adequately characterized as miners search for gold or geologists for oil. It is in the course of the quest and only through encountering and coping coping with the various particular harms, dangers, temptations and distractions which provide any quest with its episodes and incidents that the goal of the quest is finally to be understood. A quest is always an education both as to the character of that which is sought and in self-knowledge. So he writes, and then he, a provisional conclusion about the good life for man is that it is the life spent in seeking for the good life of man. It's the life uh, on this quest. This quest which intuits partially what it's looking for. This has some sense of what's good and, and valuable. What's some sense of its final tellers. And is also, in its process, an education, both as regards to the goal, but also as regards to, um, to the self. 
the good life for man, he, he, his tentative conclusion, provisional conclusion, he says, is it's the life spent in seeking for the good life for man. And the virtues necessary for the seeking are those which enable us to understand what more and what else the good life for man is. So that's, again, with regard to um, uh, the, the place of uh, personality, personhood, self, uniqueness in, in, uh, in our moral uh, explorations and our explorations of morality. This is another way of thinking about it. So this quest involves search, involves eros um, regarding values involves stretch, involves questioning, and is potentially, and I read what, what he's just, um, what I've just read of, of, of uh, what he's written, I read that as potentially open-ended, as the whole soul-making process is, and perhaps the whole, the start of the whole series, saying perhaps our exploration of morality is um, inevitably, or it should be uh, inevitably, inherently open-ended. We will never finish uh, finish with this area so one idea of what um, uh, what unifies a human life and uh, gives it that um, stamp mark face of our unique soul is is our unique quest for uh, goodness for moral goodness for understanding values and towards those values um, moral and include aesthetic and all that which speak to us which touch us which are necessary and as I said maybe um, that will vary from person to person to a certain extent as we've touched on, and it might be open-ended, and I think it should be open-ended. Okay, so these are some, as I said, uh, perspectives and ideas to ponder, to think about, to reflect on. Um, some of them, as I said, not easy, not simple, and, a bit, and, and, and some of them relatively rare in what usually gets considered. And let's stop there for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.